All right, please be seated. And turn with me to Romans chapter 16. Romans 16. We're going to be picking up this morning in about the middle of this chapter, Romans 16, beginning in verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. The word of the Lord. All right, so here we are, like we have made it. We are uh, in our final message today uh, in our Roman series. And, you know, I was reflecting some this week on the fact that this is the letter, the book of Scripture that has carried us through almost an entire year of pandemic weirdness. Everything that has happened over 2020, we have been tracking with Paul writing to this fledgling, growing church in the city of Rome. And throughout this, I've just felt like, man, this has been so appropriate for the season that we have been in, not only in our country and in our world, but in our church. It's been so appropriate for us because Paul has continually been pointing us to the fact that our hope is not in this world. Our hope is not in this world. And even though he may not have said that explicitly in that way, his teaching throughout has been pointing us to the fact that it is the righteousness of Christ and not our own righteousness that we find hope, that we find a future. If there's a common thread throughout this entire letter, it is that righteousness, not ours, but God's. Romans 1, 16 and 17, we have up here on the screen, um, was sort of a memory verse for us in a way when we were first digging into this letter. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also for the Greek. Why? Because for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. This could be like the thesis statement 
for this entire book. Paul went to great lengths to remind us that we have no real righteousness on our own. If you don't remember that, go back, read chapters two, three. I mean, he dug into our depravity. And and yet somehow, somehow the righteous will live by faith. And if you recall, we said that that statement doesn't simply mean that like righteous people will walk in faith or that faith somehow becomes like a rule of life or a standard of living for righteous people. No, what he's really trying to say there is that by faith, you will be alive. Like by faith, you will live. In other words, faith is the catalyst for life eternal. By faith, you will live as opposed to die. Through faith, the righteousness of God is revealed. For faith, through faith we see him. We see his righteousness. Through faith in Christ, we receive his righteousness. And that gives us life. That saves us from death and from sin and from hell. It gives us hope. It gives us future. And so today as we come to the final chapter of Romans, it can be easy, I think, to want to kind of bypass this or to just kind of skim through it. It can seem as if this is nothing more than a closing statement. If you have your copy of God's Word open, I want to just point you to a couple of things that we didn't read on the screen. Because if you read the first part of this chapter, it can seem like just a listing of people that Paul wants to say hello to. Um, He kind of goes through a laundry list of folks and he says, greet this person and greet this person and greet this person. And, um, and it can seem in- insignificant, but, but as you're reading through that, there are a few names in there that are extremely significant because we read about them in other parts of Scripture. We read about them in some of Paul's other letters and also in places like the book of Acts. Uh, we see people like Priscilla and Aquila, who we read about in Acts and uh, 1 Corinthians and 2 Timothy. We see Timothy himself mentioned in this letter as well. But then at the very beginning, we also meet someone named Phoebe. You may notice this. Paul asks his readers to welcome Phoebe. So to welcome her in Rome and to welcome her in a way worthy of the saints. And he describes her as a patron of his. So so more than likely, this woman, Phoebe, was a financial supporter of Paul's work. And um, interestingly, in verse 1, Paul describes her, and, and, and if you're in an ESV translation, it'll say, as a servant. He describes her as a servant of the church at Sincrea. And what's interesting there is the word that gets translated servant is the Greek word diakonos, which is where we get our word deacon. And so depending on what translation of scripture you have, you might be reading it and not see the word servant, but instead see the word deaconess. And I think there are two reasons why in a newer translation, or specifically in the ESV translation, which is what we use most of the time, we see that word rendered as servant as opposed to deacon or deaconess. And and the first reason why, it is not totally clear here if Paul is like denoting the office of deacon that we read about in Acts. It's not clear if that's what he's saying because that Greek word literally means servant. 
And if you think back to the book of Acts, when the original deacons of the church were appointed, they were appointed to do what? They were appointed to be servants of the church. That's why they were called that. So it's not entirely clear, is he talking about the office of deacon, or is he just describing this servant-hearted woman? I am actually of the persuasion that he is denoting the office of deacon here because he connects her servanthood with a particular local church. I think that's an important thing that we need to note here. He connects her service with the church in Sincrea. The second reason why it may be translated as servant is because the role of women in the church has been controversial for centuries. And so sometimes even today when translating a word like that, People tend to go with the most like literal meaning of that word so as to not potentially like infer any kind of meaning onto the text that's not there. And, and that's one of those areas where it has been a hot button for as long as the church has existed. Even today, people debate whether women actually held the office of deacon in the New Testament or not. I'm of the opinion, based on scripture, that they did. But what's even clearer, and we see this here in this chapter, what's even clearer is that women were playing a pivotal role. They were playing a pivotal role in the development of the early church, the church in Rome. They were playing a pivotal role in Paul's ministry. They were co-laboring in the gospel. He greets multiple women in this chapter um, and sees them as working for the Lord, working alongside him in this gospel ministry. Even Phoebe plays a pivotal role here, not just in supporting Paul, but it's believed that she is the one who actually delivered this letter to the church in Rome, hence the significance of her introduction here at the beginning of chapter 16. Quite possibly, Phoebe is the one who brought this manuscript to the church. And I've even heard scholars speculate based on ancient custom. I mean, think about this. When they received this letter from Paul, they didn't immediately start making copies of it, right? So that everybody could have their own copy of the Roman letter. No, what happened? They received it and it was read aloud in the assembly. It was read aloud in the church. And based on ancient custom, it is quite possible that Phoebe was the one who originally read this letter to the church in Rome because she was the messenger. And so it's possible, we're speculating here, but it's possible that the first time Paul's words that we've been studying so intently for months and months now were heard by anyone, they may have come from the mouth of a woman. And we don't know that for sure, but it's clear here in chapter 16, men and women were laboring together for the sake of the gospel. In other words, gospel work has never been, nor should ever be, the sole territory of men. It is not men's work. It is believers' work. So let's look at verse 17. I've got it up here on the screen. Verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. Such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. Paul's final instruction to the church in these last few words is to be on guard against false teaching. And he doesn't 
spend a lot of time here. He doesn't go into great detail. He doesn't highlight all of the potential false teachings that the church would have to battle or that they were facing at this time. Um, And yet, I think this point is significant and it's one of the most important things we can remember today. And it's because the scriptures indicate that in the last days, false teaching will increase like exponentially. And the specific language that the Bible uses is this language that says that preachers and teachers will want to satisfy the, quote, itching ears of people. That there are things we want to hear, whether they're true or not. There are things we want to hear because they benefit us in some way, or they bring us comfort in some way, or because they don't challenge us, or because they don't require anything of us. It doesn't require repentance, for example. We want to hear the kinds of things that bring us comfort and peace and, and don't push us or don't challenge us or don't like, get us to that place where we're right at the edge of our comfort zone and we have to continue moving forward. Our itching ears want luxury and wealth and comfort and all of the worldly things that we see around us. David Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous British preacher in the early 20th century, uh, said this, False teaching can appear in many different forms, but we can divide them into two main sections. Sometimes it takes the form of a blatant denial of the truth and of the cardinal principles and tenets of the Christian faith. But false teaching doesn't always take that form. There is another form. Here, it's not so much a denial of the faith, not so much a contradiction of the cardinal elements as a teaching which suggests that something else is required in addition to what we have already believed. So put another way, so often false teaching is not outright outrageous untruth but rather like the casual addition of some additional teaching, some additional hoop or hurdle. Another great departed theologian who just died, maybe even this year, J.I. Packer, says this. says, the mark of the false prophet or teacher is self-serving unfaithfulness to God and his truth. That's something we see throughout the scriptures. Uh, This idea that you will know true teachers and prophets and false teachers and prophets by their fruit. How do I judge what's real or not? Look at the fruit. It may be that he says what he shouldn't, but it's far more likely that he will err by failing to say what he should. He will gloss over all the tough questions and issues, as did the false prophets in the Old Testament who went around saying, peace, peace, when there was no peace. That's from Jeremiah 6. They wouldn't speak the tough word calling for repentance, nor suggest that Israel was out of sorts spiritually. Instead, they brought groundless comfort lulling people into a false sense of security so that their hearers were totally unprepared for the judgment which eventually came on them. There are teachers in the church today who never speak of repentance, self-denial, the call to be relatively poor for the Lord's sake, or any other demanding aspect of discipleship. Naturally, they are popular and approved, 
But for all that, they are false prophets. We will know such people by their fruits. Look at the people to whom they've ministered. Do these folks really know and love the Lord? Are they prepared to take risks, even hazard their lives for Jesus? Or are they comfortable, inactive, and complacent? If so, they are self-deceived, and those who have irresponsibly encouraged their self-deception will have to answer for it. Anyone who is in a position of spiritual leadership who fails to teach the more demanding, less comfortable, narrow gate and rough road side of discipleship becomes a false prophet. Wow. Wow. So false teaching can be something that lulls us into a state of complacency. It can be something that convinces us that there isn't work for us to do, whether on ourselves or in the world around us. And it's kind of like lying, like you can lie by telling an outright untruth. Like you can say something that is just totally false, or you can lie by not telling the whole truth, right? You can give a piece of it. I think the same thing is going on here. So here's what Paul says. First, a false teacher is teaching something counter to or in addition to the doctrine you have been taught. So he says, hold fast to the doctrine that you have been taught. Don't let them deceive you. But here's a problem. What if you don't really know the doctrine that you've been taught? What if you don't really know the doctrine you've been taught? Or what if you don't know it very well? Uh, I took Spanish in high school. And then for some reason when I was in college, in order to get a literature degree, I had to take 12 hours of Spanish in college. And yet I cannot speak Spanish to this day. I can't read Spanish well. I can't write Spanish. If you start speaking Spanish to me, I don't have a clue what you're saying. So I've taken all of this Spanish. I've sat under teaching I've listened to lectures, I've done the homework, I passed the courses somehow, but I didn't take it to heart, and I've never actually practiced it in my life. I've never actually used it. So if I encounter a situation now where I have to speak Spanish, like when Kyle and I go to the Mexican grocery over here to eat tacos, right, I look like an idiot, right? It's comical considering how much Spanish teaching I've sat under. I am functionally illiterate when it comes to Spanish. And the same thing is true for many people in the church today when it comes to Christian doctrine and teaching. Most of you in this room have sat and listened to Christian doctrinal, biblical teaching almost once a week for almost your entire life. And yet, for many people, They've never really taken it to heart. They've never really tried to practice it in their everyday life. And so they are functionally illiterate. Even though they've been in the room, even though they've been there and heard it, it can be like trying to speak a foreign language. I'm convinced, I'm convinced that one of the reasons why false teaching spreads so rapidly is not because there's such an abundance of false teachers out there, but it's because there are so many illiterate Christians. Not because there are so many false teachers who are peddling their lies, but because there are so many Christians who don't recognize it as untruth. And even if they do, don't know why it's untrue or don't know what to say in contrast to it. Some false teachings that are popular today. 
one we talk about a lot around here because this is what I grew up with. It's what I see every day, moralism. Uh, Sean Michael Lucas, who's a pastor and college professor, says it this way. Typically, in evangelical churches, the basic gospel is preached and taught. Sinners who trust in Jesus alone have their sins forgiven and a promised heaven. Yet, from there, many of these same churches then teach their congregants that once they are saved, it is up to them to fly right and do better. The Christian life is one of effort, and God blesses those who help themselves, work hard, keep their noses clean, tell the truth, and live a good life. Unwittingly, perhaps, people begin to believe that this is the gospel, an almost economic transaction where we give God our obedience and he gives us blessing, sufficient food and shelter, good marriages, well-turned-out children, good work, and occasional vacations. Of course, this isn't the gospel at all. It's moralism. It's what David Martin Lloyd-Jones was talking about in the quote we read just a few moments ago. It's this thing where we present the gospel, but then we add something else on top of it. Where we come to think that the gospel is, if I am a good boy or girl, then God will save me, or then God will bless me, or then God will take care of me, right? That's not the gospel, is it? The gospel says that, and Paul has presented this clearly here in Romans, that in spite of your incapability, in spite of your depravity, in spite of your sin, in spite of the fact that you've turned your back on God over and over and over again, he has provided for you eternally in the form of his son, Jesus Christ. You did not earn that. You did not deserve that. And yet he willingly went to the cross on your behalf and died and rose from the dead so that you might get the very thing we just read about. You might be a son or daughter of the king. You might sit at his table eternally. You might experience his perfect heaven, right? That's the gospel. I didn't do that. I didn't, I didn't earn that. And, and, and I don't keep it now somehow by being a good boy or by earning it or by keeping my nose clean like he said, right? I, I, I didn't get it that way, so I don't keep it that way either. He is the one who keeps it. He is the one who holds it. And that's been the whole point throughout this letter. It's his righteousness given to us that reconciles us to the Father. His righteousness, not mine. His glory, not mine right? I don't deserve it. I can't get it on my own. I can't buy it. He's given it to me. This is the gospel. And so for that same reason, I can't just lose it. It's not something that I magically found or purchased. And so I can't just decide I don't want it anymore, right? He is the one who holds us in his hand, Another false teaching birthed out of moralism is the so-called prosperity gospel. You hear about this a lot, which basically says that if you are a good boy or girl and if you do what God wants you to do, that he's going to bless you with material possessions. You know, just like Jesus did when he fed the 4,000 and then gave each of them a Lexus, right? No, actually, Jesus said in Luke 12, listen to this. Here's what Jesus said. Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. That's what Jesus actually said. Another one that I've seen recently 
um, that really does kind of worry me a bit because it is so, I think it's so kind of clandestine and so many people don't know what to do with it. Um, and, and it's waned a little bit, but there was a period of time, 2014, 15, somewhere in there, you could go into Barnes and Noble and there would be 10 to 15 books that were supposedly the first-hand accounts of people who had died and gone to heaven and come back. Do y'all remember these? There was one called Heaven is for Real that was really, I mean, just sold millions of copies. And if you go to the used bookstore today, they got like 400 of them in there. But it wasn't just that one. Like publishers were churning out these books of stories of people who had gone to heaven and come back. And Christians were eating that stuff up. And you may go, well, Weston, how do you know that they didn't die and go to heaven and come back with a, an account of what they experienced? And my answer is, I don't know that. But here's what I do know. God has already revealed himself to us in the form of the Holy Scriptures. I believe that the Scriptures are perfect and complete and that they are everything that the Lord intends for them to be. And that like our hope of salvation, our hope of future, our reconciliation to God through Christ, all of this we learn about in the pages of Scripture. It's not like God's sitting up in heaven going, oh, I forgot a couple things I need to tell them about now. So, so that's one thing. I, I think the Bible in and of itself is a complete unit. But, but here's another piece of that. And here's how we can kind of view some of these things that we see in our world. Isn't it interesting that something that never happens in the pages of Scripture, meaning somebody who comes back and provides a full account of their experience in the afterlife, whether it's heaven or hell, because there's been both of these books, that never happens in the Bible, and yet suddenly we apparently live in this golden age of people going to heaven and coming back with stories. Doesn't that at least make you go, hmm, like, is this actually real? Notice in our text today, Paul talks about the naive being deceived. And listen, guys, I think that's so many people in the church today. Just because you're a Christian does not mean that you cannot be deceived. Even me. I include myself in that statement as well. Right? So we have to judge these things based on the word of God, what we know to be true. And the problem is, is if you look at a book like that and you do believe it to be true, why would you not take this account in the same way that you take what comes out of the pages of Scripture? That becomes really murky for people. So that's another thing that I've seen recently as well. It becomes very difficult. And um, I think we, I think this is a rabbit trail, but I think the part of the problem with those kinds of accounts is they seem very self-focused. They seem all about all of this great stuff that I got to experience. I got to see grandma and grandpa and all of these things. And yet what the sense we get from the scriptures is that what is to come in the new heavens and new earth is solely focused on the glory of God and that we will worship him eternally. So these are things I've seen recently, and we could, honestly, we could go on identifying false teachings and be here for days. Um, I think the harder thing for us to do is to, like, confidently combat these things with biblical truth. 
because we simply don't know our Bibles well enough. We can perhaps recognize when something seems wonky or when something seems a little bit off, or I'm not real sure about that, um, but we have a hard time defending our position or explaining why something is untrue. Um, I'm coaching a guy right now who's in his early 30s, doesn't go to our church, but um, he's uh, got two young kids, he's married, and when uh, the pandemic started this year, he was hearing some things associated with that, and he recognized, that doesn't really sound right to me. And so you know what he did? He said, you know, I realized I don't really know the Bible all that well, and I don't have a great grasp on Christian doctrine. And so he read the Bible from cover to cover in about three months. He said, man, I've got two young kids now. I can't even explain why this thing that I'm hearing is wrong, even though I know it's wrong. And so what did he do? Well, he did what we all should do. He sat down and read the scriptures. And he devoted himself to, I mean, every morning he was spending at least an hour reading the word of God. So he spent three months, he read through it, it ignited in him a passion for the scriptures, and he's now enrolled in seminary and is starting seminary in the spring. And, and he's, not, he's not going, I think the Lord's called me to be a pastor or preacher. He's going, if this is true then why would I not devote a significant portion of my life to not only knowing these words, but practicing and living these words? If this is real, why would this be one hour one day a week or maybe two hours throughout my week? Why would this not be a part of my daily life? Why would this not be something that I would want to continue to go to school to learn more about? Why would this not be something that I would devote myself to every morning? If it is real, if these things shape us, if these things guide us, if these things tell us what's true, then why is this not a significant part of my existence? And I think many of us could ask the same question of ourselves. We have to take our biblical literacy seriously. Well, how do I do that? Where do I start? We start by reading the Bible, guys. It's not rocket science. It may not be what you want to do, but it is the form and the path that God has given us. And when you're finished reading it, start over and keep reading it until you go be with Jesus. Finally, Paul tells us that we should avoid false teachers and have nothing to do with them. Like when you recognize false teaching, you need to be in a position to be able to call it out, but you also need to separate yourself from those who are false teachers. One old revivalist preacher said that the way that the Bible tells us to treat false teachers sounds downright non-Christian. That's how serious the scriptures take it. Like, if you see someone doing this, you, you need to shun them, you need to be done with them, you need to cast them out, you need to not listen to them. Paul says you need to avoid them here. It sounds unchristian, but that's how serious it is. The greatest threat to the faith is not persecution, it's not pandemics, it is false teaching. That is the greatest threat that we face today. Finally, this is what Paul leaves the Roman church with. This very last paragraph, it's sort of a summation statement. It's a word of blessing to God. Here's what he says. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and to the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed. 
It's been given to us through the prophetic writings, has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Paul says, press on, church. Press on. Press on knowing that your God goes before you, that he is able to strengthen you, that he is able to bring about the obedience of faith. It is through his righteousness that we are healed, and it is his righteousness given to us that gives us hope eternal. The work is his, and yet he graciously invites us and equips us as we join him in it. So he says, let's go. Let's do this. To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Christ Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace and your love. Thank you for the words of the Apostle Paul inspired by you. Thank you for the righteousness of Christ given to us so freely when we have no righteousness of our own. Thank you for the hope that we find in that the promise of future blessing as your sons and daughters living eternally with you in your kingdom. God, you are good. Give us a heart that desires to know you deeply, to know your truths deeply, to know your biblical doctrines deeply, not so that we might be puffed up or smart, but, Father, so that we might truly defend against the work of the enemy which is so often not outright and blatant. It's so often concealed and veiled and robed in half-truths. Father, give us clarity of understanding and give us a desire to grow in those things. Father, if this is real, give us a heart that longs to make you the center of everything. And if you are the center of everything, may your scriptures and the prayers and the sacraments and the community of the church be central for us as well. Father, you have given us these things for our good and for your glory. Help us to desire them even when relationships are hard, even when we want comfort and peace and luxury. Give us hearts that desire to honor you through sacrifice. Thank you for a season to dig into this letter. Thank you for the things that we have learned. We love you. That's in your name we pray. Amen.